0: Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Michaela Gill. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy and global affairs discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines, that's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Achieving gender equality requires the intentional mobilization of resources worldwide to design and implement policies that protect and empower women. However, policies and development programs often rely on biased data collected in majority from men, making the needs and experiences of roughly half the population essentially invisible. Today, we are joined by incredibly knowledgeable experts to discuss how big data can be leveraged to achieve gender equality. Our first guest today is Ali Dunn. Ali is the founder and executive director at Data Feminism Network, a nonprofit organization and community hub dedicated to promoting equitable and gender sensitive data systems for better, more inclusive decision making. Previously, Ali worked for the United Nations Statistics Division and the United Nations Development Program, where she performed statistical analysis to promote components of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Prior to joining the UN, she worked with the government of Papua New Guinea to establish interventions to reduce gender-based violence across the country. Ali, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me
0: to start us off. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the social impact measurement policies that you designed with the gift foundation.
1: Definitely. So the gift foundation, which stands for girls in FinTech, is a stem and financial information skill development and education program for female students and post school learners who have an interest in pursuing a career in FinTech The mission of this foundation is really just to make fintech an accessible career choice for girls and women in South Africa. But they also want to have a wider impact of establishing female social and economic independence through career development and education to ultimately help break cyclical poverty and secure gender equality in South Africa. So when I joined the team, the organization was just starting out and they hired me to create this social impact measurement policy. So I created this thing called a theory of change, also known as a causal chain, which basically visually depicts the link between the GIF Foundation's inputs, outputs, outcomes, and long-term impact. And this just provides the organization with a means of monitoring and evaluating their progress. So the idea is to measure both objective and subjective outputs. An example of an objective output would be ex-girls mentored or ex-girls placed in internships after the program. And a subjective output would be something like self-reliance or confidence or empowerment, which is a lot more difficult to measure. So then you take it a step further and you dive into the key drivers for delivering on our mission, such as excellent teaching and learning opportunities or having an environment conducive to learning. And then once you have all this from a data strategy perspective, you can then determine what metrics are important to track. So essentially, I was just there to answer the questions. How do we measure empowerment? How do we improve that measure? And how can we use the data and lessons learned from that measure to improve the program? So the program, it's an independent foundation working more on a local level and empowering individuals on an individual level. But some of the outcomes that they're working towards is Girls gain transferable skills for entering the labor market, or, you know, there's an increased capacity for girls to earn an income through sustainable employment, and then eventually leading to that more long-term impact of establishing female social and economic independence and breaking that cycle of poverty. So although they don't directly influence policies that do that, they help achieve those outcomes through skill development and education.
0: I'm also really interested to know more about your work with UN Women. What did the data illuminate for you about the issue of gender-based violence in Papua New Guinea while you were working with that team?
1: This was one of my favorite projects, but I do have to clarify that I did not work for UN Women, but with UN Women as an intern for the strategic advisor to the governor of the National Capital District Commission in Papua New Guinea, who also happened to be a senior consultant on UN Women. So I was working with UN Women on that project, but not hired in them or hired by them. So yeah, on that project, I supported the design of the National Capital District Commission strategy to end gender-based violence. So they sent out this countrywide survey to get a better idea of people's attitudes towards gender-based violence and experience with it as survivors or whether they had any experience at all. So I analyzed this data to identify high-risk perpetrators, high-risk survivors, and those who are likely to support spousal violence based on patterns and trends in the demographic data. And this was really eye-opening and inspiring for me because you were able to look at this data and kind of generalize that this age group, gender, and region are particularly high risk of being or becoming perpetrators. And then similarly, this age group region, and income level are high-risk survivors, and in doing so, this data illuminated, first of all, the issue at hand, you know, show the government this is an important issue that needs attention, but it also not only reaffirms that gender-based violence is a problem, but it highlights where interventions are needed most, and in this way, the government was able to create more effective programming by targeting those groups that are higher-risk
0: One of the key findings of the UN75 Tajikistan report was that gender equality was among the top two priorities for women who were surveyed, especially those without post-secondary education. Why was this finding so important for the future development of the country? And why specifically were less educated women more concerned about gender equality?
1: Gender inequality is a major challenge in local, national, and global levels. Not only does it affect the lives of individual women, and men and non-binary people who unfortunately weren't included in this particular study, but inequality between genders stunts economic growth and hinders development. And at the end of the day, it's women and non-binary people who feel the negative effects of gender inequality. So it's not surprising that it's a greater priority for them. And this train of thought kind of extends to the second part of your question, which is why do less educated women more concerned about gender inequality. And I think that this might be a reflection of the fact that without an education, we know it's more difficult to get a job, which can lead to lower levels of self-reliance and confidence, less autonomy. And because of this, less educated women are even lower down in our hierarchical social ladder and often feel the effects of gender-based violence and other forms of inequality more drastically. I just kind of think of it as additional layers of oppression.
0: And now after gaining this wealth of experience, you are the founder of the Data Feminism Network and you've engaged with a variety of researchers, analysts and activists who work in the realm of gender data where you've learned about many data fails across policies, development initiatives and industries. So could you please share with our listeners some of the more surprising data fails that you've learned about that impact women in their everyday lives?
1: I could go on and on about data fails. There are so many, but data fails essentially, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, I guess, data fails stem from what we call data gaps. And the data gap that we focus on at Data Feminism Network is known as the gender data gap, or I guess I should say it's it's an umbrella. It's a type of gap that, that we focus on. And the gender data gap essentially refers to the fact that the majority of information that we collect globally, everything from economic data to medical data, has been primarily collected on men. And the effects of these gender data gaps can range from uh, annoying to fatal. So I'll start with a more annoying example and get darker as, as we go through. But if any of you women work in an office or any of you female listeners out there, I'm sure you can relate to it being way too cold. It's October now where I am in New York City and it's still pretty warm out surprisingly but I still have to bring a sweater or a scarf even though I walk to work in a t-shirt because it's freezing and the reason for this is that the formula that was used to determine office temperatures it was developed in the 1960s and it was based on the metabolic resting rate of a 40 year old 70 kilogram man so like an average age and weight of a man but women's metabolisms are, are a lot slower so it means that we get colder more easily. So there's an annoying data fail. A more fatal example is that medicine has been built on the assumption that male bodies can represent humanity as a whole, which has led to a huge historical data gap when it comes to female bodies. There's this phenomenon known as Yentl syndrome, whereby women are misdiagnosed or poorly treated unless their symptoms conform to those of men. A heart attack, for example, can present itself differently between men and women, and this means that women must navigate the obstacle course of male bias treatment, and inevitably the consequences of this lack of data can be fatal. And the last data fail I'll talk about, not to do with the gender data gap per se, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with Amazon. And Amazon, actually, a few years ago, they developed a sexist recruiting tool, which they had to scrape pretty quickly. But what happened is. You know, we all know Amazon's like one of the largest companies in the world. And as a result, the company deals with a lot of job applications each year. So in 2014, the company was trying to find an efficient way to review these applications. What they decided to do is they created an algorithm to do a first pass filter of applicants based on the resumes of existing employees, which sounds like a relatively good idea. I mean, people are hired for a reason, right? However, they almost immediately had to scrape the idea because they discovered that the system wasn't rating candidates in a gender neutral way. So how the system worked is it did a kind of regression analysis to figure out what factors are correlated to resumes that should be immediately dismissed. And what they found was that if an applicant attended a woman's college, they were put into the definitely do not interview category because so many of Amazon's employees that were already working there didn't go to a women's college because they were men. So it's this amplification of human bias that is particularly concerning. There's this one sentence, I can't remember who said it, I can't remember where I read it, but um, it says that algorithms aren't just reflecting our biases, but rather they're amplifying them by a significant amount. And that's something that I think about all the time and is a perfect example of of why these data fails are happening.
0: So lastly, what are some of the most impactful things that you've learned about gender inequality in your work?
1: So my work is focused on the intersection of data and gender inequality. So with that in mind, there is one book that has been particularly influential in my work and was actually a big inspiration behind the founding of DFN, and that's a book called Data Feminism by Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend. So data feminism is a term that they coined when writing this book, and it's essentially a framework for thinking about data science and ethics that is guided by ideas of intersectional feminism. So it's tied to gender equality and just equality in general, beyond gender. So there are seven principles in the book, and one that I think about most often in my work is considering context, which essentially refers to the fact that the numbers don't always speak for themselves and data isn't inherently objective. So you need to ask yourself, when when you get a data set, I always ask myself, who is collecting this data? how was the data collected and with whose goals in mind? Those are some questions they talk about in the book and questions that I have repeatedly asked myself over the past few months in my work, because all of these things will shape the types of responses you get when collecting data and it will influence your data as a whole. So there's a famous example pertaining to gender from labor force participation rates, where depending on how you ask the question of women, labor force participation rates go up or down. And obviously, they're not actually going up and down, but the data ends up being more or less accurate depending on how you frame the question. So this idea that data isn't something completely objective and acknowledging all the different aspects that influence the validity and accuracy of your data is important to keep in mind and definitely one of the most impactful learnings in my work.
0: Thank you so much again, Ali, for joining us today. It was wonderful having you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Michaela.
0: Once again, that was Ali Dunn. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Our next guest is Dr. Claudia Lopez. Dr. Claudia Lopez is a research lead for capacity development at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. Prior to joining the UNU, She was an affiliated lecturer in statistics and methods at POLIS and a lead consultant in big data and gender at UN Women. Claudia has also worked on the charity sector with Girl Effect as a data scientist and Africa's Voices Foundation as the head of research and innovation, where she led projects that used digital data to accelerate and evaluate the impact of public health interventions. Thank you so much, Claudia, for joining me on the show today.
2: Thank you, Michaela. I'm very glad to be here to show
0: in co-authoring the UN Women Report on gender equality and big data, you note gender gaps in traditional data. Could you explain the difference between traditional data and gender data and highlight some of these gaps?
2: Yes, I can, I can first make, make a distinction about traditional data and, uh, and uh, innovative data. Traditional data is the data that we use So if you think about the Sustainable Development Goals Framework is data that we need to measure the progress towards these goals. So we have indicators uh, for um, each each goal, uh, a number, a set of indicators, and the countries need to collect data systematically on some of them on an annual basis or more or less, just to understand and to monitor the progress. So the, the methodologies that are used they are not very innovative in a way that they need to be used in a consistent way, in a standardised way, and in a credible way. So it's possible to establish comparisons across countries and over time. So depending on the indicators, some indicators are more at a level of the, of the nation, others are more uh, at the individual level. So it's, uh, their type of methodologies that use are used, for example, Oswald surveys, or there are there are, some, there are other, other methods related with the policy analysis, or some indicators are really straightforward, that is the percentage of women in, in the leadership position. So we can just look at um, there are data organizations that compile the, the gender gaps in the, in, in the parliament. So these are the traditional data that are credible. But the problem with these data sources is that they take a lot of resources to collect. It implies time, it implies costs. And I think the, the main challenge is not as much the time and the cost, but as to do with um, the skills that are needed to collect this money, this, this, um, this data. So the main challenges in terms of collecting this traditional data are related with resources, uh, costs in terms of uh, actual costs in, in terms of the money the costs in terms of the time and uh, and the human resources. And um, also the one of the main challenges is the skills. So the skills are not distributed equally in the global north and the global south. And, uh, and for example, uh, to do Oswald surveys um, in the most rigorous way, we need sampling frames that are based on census data. So not all countries in the global south, they have census data that are updated and available to construct the sampling frame. So that's already a disadvantage in terms of data collection in the global north and the global south. But we know that digital data is burgeoning and we can access data from digital platforms. There's also, of course, a difference in terms of low and middle income countries that people don't have access to to, to these platforms and the platforms available may be different from, from other countries. Um, But there are information that is circulating that tell us something about people, about communities and countries. And uh, it's not as structured, it's not as targeted, but it will give us very important insights that are timely, unlike this traditional data, and will allow us to make decisions and to course correct interventions as, as we go. So these are the new types of data. That we can think of digital data from um, social media platforms, but uh, there's also data that is called citizen generated data, that is data that is more crafted and uh, collected by the communities to address problems that they know very well. And they can use that data from a policy perspective to, to, to find solutions and to propose these solutions to the decision makers to solve the problems in their communities. So these are the different types of data. We have traditional data, we have innovative data that is, for example, big data or citizen generated data. And there's also administrative data that is a bit more difficult to access. Okay, so gender data is data that highlights what are the needs and opportunities and the contribution of women, girls, boys, men, and gender diverse people, and as well as data that show the barriers to achieve the gender equality. So most of the time, people equate gender data with gender disaggregated data, but that's a very reductionist uh, definition of of gender data. To understand all the the dynamics that uh, gender plays in creating barriers for men, women, and gender diverse individuals, we need to understand what type of man, what type of woman. So if there are other social stratifiers that not gender that matter. So it's different if he's a woman who is a undocumented migrant, than is whether he's a woman who is living in a country and doesn't face any kind of threats in terms of the citizenship status. Or it's different if he's a woman living in a rural area in Malawi, or if he's a woman living in Toronto in Canada. So all these things need to be taken into account and not think that if we disaggregate data and say this is the gender of the individual in the data, it doesn't solve any problem and it can really obscure other um, inequities.
0: Could you share with our listeners about some of the projects where gender data and big data have actually aided in policymaking and project initiatives that target gender equality? For example, from your work with Girl Effect Charity and Africa Voices Foundation?
2: At the moment, I work at the International Institute for Global Health uh, as part of uh, the different institutes uh, of the network of United Nations University. So we are based in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And the work that we do, it's mainly translating evidence into the policy, but we use research that others did to provide recommendations to governments and to other UN agencies. But before, before this work, I work at the Africa Voices Foundation at Girl Effect and also at UN Women. And, uh, and the, the, let me talk about the work at Girl Effect because I think it's very exciting and it was a wonderful experience. So Girl Effect just uses the, all the power of the data and digital platforms to improve lives of girls worldwide. So they work in, in several regions. The, I was, it was based in London just because the headquarters was there, but we would work uh, in projects in Malawi, Indonesia, in, in South Africa and, and other countries. So the idea is that using mobile phones was possible to create interactive conversations when I say interactive is just not uh, we are not only capture data because this is a very extractive approach we just want to tap into the conversations that already exist that uh, girls and boys but mainly girls that was the main target girls between 15 and uh, 20 years old that they will have in in platforms in chats in whatsapp the idea is to tap into these conversations in these chats and curate them in a way that girls would trust so there will be uh, someone called big sister uh, for example in South Africa that was like a older woman would give advice to the girls and the guys, girls would feel safe to ask the questions that they want in terms of sexual reproductive health in terms of education in terms of the relationship with their peers and their parents and we'll learn from each other and and there was an amazing um, amazing project to understand how can we get into the um, the intimacy and, and the lives of these girls and how they trust and how they trust the platform with the data. So this was a platform that was created only for these girls, was, was called Springster. So there were some articles, uh, there was some um, blogs with their stories and they, uh, and, and all the, the, the conversational data from the chats was used to understand what are their needs, what are the gaps in information. And uh, all, the, all the articles and all the information in the platform was directed to their needs. So it was possible in real time to understand what the questions are asking, what are the challenges they're asking in their lives and try to provide them resources um, in terms of information to help them. So that's, I think, a good example of gender data.
0: In one of your papers, you highlight that over 50% of the women in rural Sub-Saharan Africa aged 15 to 24 had been pregnant before their 18th birthday. Can you explain what these gender inequities are and how they influence health outcomes?
2: Yes, of course. I think gender inequities, they come in, in very different shapes and forms, and it will be difficult most of the time to identify a context where gender inequities uh, are not present maybe just for, for our listeners, if they are new in this area of gender. So the, there's a difference between the gender inequities and gender inequalities. Gender inequalities has to do with the equal opportunities for for men and for women and gender diverse people. So gender is not binary. And it's increasingly, there are different genders and people can identify with them. It's, the gender inequality has to do with the giving equal opportunities but inequity goes one step further that has to do with the the fairness of the opportunities. It's just to make sure that not only the starting point is the same, but the starting point is adjusted to the needs of these different genders. So there's some specificities that come with this gender, and this is the intersectionality approach that is understand gender in context. And uh, through policies, through interventions, we need to understand that understand that context and adjust all the different actions all the different the objectives of our research to to this gender in context so this will create the gender um, equity and uh, and will help us to advance sdg 5 that is uh, related with the gender equality in the sdg framework one the main source of of this gender inequities as to do with different expectations and roles for, for example, men and women. So even if people have the opportunities and equal opportunities, they were primed to think that they can achieve different things or they can behave in a different things and, uh, and their aspirations may be different. So, and I'm not saying that genders, they may not have their own different aspirations or specificities. It, it can be, there's nothing wrong with that but is wrong when this is imposed by the society and people even if they want to do something different they may not have the opportunity to do it because they are under the scrutiny of of others in their communities in their groups or if you want, don't want to to think at small groups families and community level we can think in terms of the policies so not all policies are considered gender. So the idea of gender mainstreaming in policies, in funding in investment is relatively new, and there are some progress done in that respect. But uh, when we have a policy, we cannot think that this may apply equally to men, women, and gender diverse people. It's not necessary. It's it's needed, but it, it's, it's necessary to go one step further to say, if you really want men, women, and gender diverse people to achieve at the same point, to have the same type of outcomes, health or others, what do we need to adapt to help them to get there? All the structural determinants are related with with these inequalities in the labor force, inequalities in the, for example, unpaid care work for women, Uh, inequalities in in places in in places of leadership that are not accessible to women even if they are there and women can can go to the top but they women then need to have a a path that more difficult than than other men and I'm not generalizing I explain already that depends on the context because they have the families uh, that that will expect them to have a certain role they have children that uh, they they will have less time because they spend more time doing home duties so there's all these challenges that one gender may have that other genders, they don't have.
0: In order to achieve gender equality by 2030, what are some of the top priorities as you see them to improve gender data and improve policies and initiatives specifically targeting women?
2: Yes, so let's talk specifically about data and gender data. So gender data is still very rare. Just to give you an overview of uh, what's happening in terms of uh, collecting data related to gender equality for the sustainable development goals. So we have one goal that is SDG 5 that is related with uh, gender equality. But one of the um, aspects of the SDG framework is that gender cuts across all the other SDGs. So to achieve, for example, SDG 3 that is related to the health and well-being we cannot do it if you not achieve gender equality. So they are all interdependent. And I could give you other examples of the gender aspects of work, of, uh, of the economy, of, uh, of the environment. So it's impossible to go where you want to go in terms of these SDG targets, if SDG five is not a priority and all the gender aspects of the, of the other goals. In terms of the data that we need, we, we know that only 20% or 22% of the gender-specific indicators, indicators that, that they need to be at least gender-desegregated, only 22% of these indicators have, uh, have adequate data. So it means that's like 80% of the gender inequalities that we are not capturing. Those that we expect, because there are other gender inequities that uh, are not captured by the SDGs, not only because there's no data, but because there are gender issues related with, for example, with surveillance, for example, gender-based violence in the digital world. uh, and, And these things are not captured in the SDGs just because maybe when the SDGs were formulated, this was not a priority. I think in terms of the way forward is we need to improve the collection and and the dissemination and utilization of these gender data that is not only segregated by sex, but also by the other intersectional attributes. Uh, We need more robust methodologies from a a more research point of view to collect data that is not the traditional data. So we are still, we have access to volumes of data nowadays. We, We don't need to collect data all the time, the data exists, but the challenges are how can this data is made public available in a way that respects the privacy frameworks and how these data can be analyzed using methodologies that are rigorous and that can allow us to extract some information, some good insights that can be informed policy. So this type of methodologies, there are good examples. And if you see in the UN Women brief on gender and big data, there are some examples there. It's also important to develop methodologies for collecting data and using the new platforms for digital data or also for citizen-generated data. But this type of methodologies, they are yet not very robust, and there has been several critiques when they compare them to traditional data. So it's important to do some progress in terms of research methods to collect and process and extract knowledge from this data. And it's also important to do more capacity training on gender data, particularly in low and middle income countries, because there's, you know, we cannot achieve equality in some countries if you don't achieve in others. We need to be in this together. So we need, first of all, to equalise these differences that exist in terms of data, skills, and and access. And it's also important for the national statistical agencies that collect the traditional data to have more resources to collect gender-disaggregated data. Because what we have at the moment, what we can see, is that the data that we need for the SDGs are not there yet. So we just need to think of how can we get that data that will give us very rigorous benchmarks and rigorous indicators to measure the progress in terms of SDGs. But uh, as I explained in the beginning, like this data is is not timely data. So it takes maybe one year for a cycle for household survey for the data to be available. So we need to complement this traditional data with uh, these more innovative data sources to understand what's working in this moment. Now, so I can give you just one example of why this timely data is important. So, for example, for gender-based violence, um, as you imagine, is a is type of data that is is very sensitive. So it's it's difficult to um, to obtain information. So, if you want to obtain information at individual level, we need to do a household surveys. We we need to to, to be face to face to people and talk about these these problems that they are that they are experiencing. So to run household surveys in different countries to compare levels of gender-based violence is extremely costly, it's needed, but it cannot be done every year. So there's a new report that came out in last year in 2020 that was during COVID times that we all knew that gender-based violence was a shadow pandemic, but we didn't have data about that we knew that it was increasing based on reports from you know administrative data from um, call centers where we could see that the number of cases was increasing just because there are more people reporting cases of violence but probably this was just a tip of iceberg we couldn't know what was the extension of the problem so when this uh, report came out it was based on data but the data was already from 2017, 2018. So it was before COVID. So it means that we didn't have any evidence to using this traditional data to understand what the, how big was the shadow pandemic. And, uh, and there are very creative uh, studies that I saw, for example, one in Mexico with the Datapop Alliance, that they just combine all the administrative data from, from uh, policy reports the uh, woman who could, um, uh, during the, the, the pandemic, report uh, cases of violence that is, is, is really just a minority because it means that women, they needed to leave home or they needed to call to a police station and they needed to have a solution to leave home if, if, if necessary. And uh, also women who called to, to shelters and some of the shelters were also closed during the pandemic. It's important to, to, to stress that not all the resources are available and also women who called to, to hotlines. So pulling all these data together, um, it was possible to to see uh, that what was the increase of the cases and what was the impact of the lockdowns. And and, uh, we we may think that the lockdowns, maybe they will increase the cases of violence. We know that, and there are some theoretical models that that shows that, uh, um, for example, UNDP, they did a simulation where they, predict what will be the increase of number of cases of, of violence by uh, every additional month of lockdown. But if you look at the data from Datapop Alliance, what you can see is that during the pandemic, the, the reporting of the numer- number of cases was stagnant or even decreased. But when the lockdowns were, were lifted, there was a huge increase, a huge peak in terms of the report. So that will give us an idea of, I think, the extension of the problem. And so it's, I think, a really good example of why we need data and how these different uh, innovative uh, data sources will shed some light on data that is impossible to obtain in real time.
0: Thank you so much again, Claudia, for joining us today on the show. We're really happy to have you. Thank you very much. Our next guest is Doanne Crawford. Joanne Crawford has some 35 years' experience across government, civil society, universities, and as a consultant, including senior policy roles with the Australian Government's Office for the Status of Women and the Australian Agency for International Development. Her working life has centred on progressing positive change through research, public policy, collaboration and activism, with a sustained focus on equality and international engagement. Joanne was part of the international research collaboration that developed a world-first individual-level gender-sensitive measure of poverty, the Individual Deprivation Measure. She is currently a special advisor with the Equality Insights team at International Women's Development Agency. She has a master's degree in public policy and management from Melbourne University, a graduate diploma in strategic studies from the Australian National University, and an honours degree in economics from Monash University. Thank you so much, Joanne, for joining me today.
3: Thank you very much. Before we jump in, I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from where I'm joining you, the Wurundjeri Woi Warang people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They're part of the world's oldest continuing living culture. This acknowledgement is a common practice in Australia to recognize the ongoing sovereignty of Australia's indigenous peoples and their custodianship of this land.
0: Equality Insights was developed to address the limitations of current poverty measures. What are the problems with how poverty and inequality are currently measured? And how does Equality Insights overcome these challenges?
3: So I want to focus on four key limitations um, and their implications. Firstly, around the world, poverty measurement assesses the poverty of households, not individuals. This means it can tell us about people in poverty, but not which people. From the data currently collected, we can't answer fundamental questions such as how many women are poor globally, and are women poorer than men overall this is i think pretty basic information most fundamentally this problem means that the da- that data cannot be accurately disaggregated to show how poverty varies by factors such as gender age ability or intersections of these factors despite evidence that all of these things influence access to and control of resources so by continuing to measure the poverty of households by design what we're doing is hiding the relationship between gender and poverty and intersectional experiences of poverty. Secondly, information about the circumstances of the household are usually collected from one person, typically the head of the household and typically a male. This assumes that one person is a reasonable proxy for everybody else in the household, and it further assumes that resources within the household are evenly distributed. Anyone who's ever lived in a share house with other people knows that this isn't true. And in terms of gender, we know that the household is a significant site of of inequality. Further, and I think this is a really important point, leading development economists such as Ravi Canberra estimates that around one third of global poverty and inequality is found within households and so is hidden by household level measurement. Thirdly, current measures of poverty focus on money or a narrow range of other factors such as health and education. Yet people who experience poverty say that a much wider range of factors keep them poor and would need to change for them to be no longer poor. We know this from our own research with thousands of men and women with lived experience of poverty in six countries in Asia, Africa and the Pacific. And finally, most measurement focuses on factors that women and men have in common. And excludes factors that are particularly relevant for women and involve significant economic costs or life implications for them, such as access to contraception and access to menstrual hygiene facilities and products. I also want to give you an outline of the kind of four key ways in which Quality Insights works to overcome these limitations. So firstly, instead of being limited by existing data, we collect primary data at an individual level. What this means is that we're not bound by the limitations and gender inequalities embedded in existing data. Gender-insensitive data, which is what household-level data is because we can't see the gender dynamics, cannot provide meaningful insights into gender poverty. Of course, it makes sense to use gender data where it exists and is available, but data about a household can't provide insight into the relationship between gender and poverty. Additionally, the surveys from which much of the data currently used for multidimensional poverty measurement only interview women of reproductive age. What this means is that they provide no data at all about women over 50, precisely the generation that has experienced the greatest cumulative impact of years of gender-based discrimination and disadvantage in many countries. Instead, what Equality Insights does is survey individual adults of all ages about 15 key dimensions of life and assets as a proxy for financial status. This makes it possible to understand how deprivations in particular dimensions are related and how these vary by factors such as gender, age, geography, disability status and intersections of these characteristics. Secondly, we also interview all adults within a household. What this does is give insight into any differences that exist inside a household, as well as between households. Given that, as I mentioned earlier, Ravi Kanbo has estimated that around one-third of global inequality is found inside households rather than between them. This helps provide a more accurate picture of poverty and inequality and captures information that's currently missed by household level measurement. Thirdly, as I, as I mentioned briefly, we assess a wider range of dimensions of life than existing measures. This includes recognizing dimensions of deprivation that are highly gendered, such as family planning, voice and time use, and which influence the ability of women in particular to improve their circumstances. Not all of the issues that keep people poor can be solved with a bit of money in the hands of an individual. Linked to that, and and finally, we take a gender sensitive approach to measurement in the dimensions that we cover, as well as in the indicators to measure them. So for example, In our clothing dimension, we ask questions about sufficiency of menstrual hygiene products, and our health dimension asks questions about access to prenatal and birthing support.
0: Being able to disaggregate poverty and inequality data is vital to understand the nature and extent of the challenges experienced by particular groups. How does having data about individuals support policymakers to have a greater impact overall?
3: As you say, being able to disaggregate data is key to seeing how factors such as gender, age, ability, sociocultural background, or or combinations of these factors influence a person's life circumstances. And data about individuals makes disaggregation possible. Data that reveals difference in circumstances based on gender and other factors, such as age and ability are are a foundation for visibility and inclusion, and therefore also for for justice and, and equality. Being able to see the drivers of poverty and inequality for particular groups makes it possible to act to change them and to focus attention where the need is greatest and to address the specific barriers and challenges faced by particular groups. Individuals in households have different experiences and opportunities, and these are shaped by gender norms and social expectations. They also often play different roles and responsibilities that are often highly gendered and also unequally valued and remunerated. And so in this context, it's really critical that decision makers have insights into the particular constraints and opportunities and the nature and extent of challenges faced by by particular groups. You know, deep qualitative knowledge is really important for understanding the human experience, its significance, and for motivating action. People are really moved by individual stories, but it's difficult to translate that kind of knowledge into information that confirms the scope and scale of issues, and it's, it's that that... Um, decision makers, particularly in inside governments, need. This kind of information, quantitative information for decision makers with responsibility to decide where to allocate finite resources is really critical for greatest economic and social impact.
0: How does gender sensitive measurement of multidimensional poverty help to meet the commitments to the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development?
3: So, Nicola, right now, decisions on policies and actions towards some key sustainable development goals are being made using data that hides the experience of half the population. And solutions that are designed using data that doesn't capture women's experience will inevitably be suboptimal, I think. On the flip side, gender-sensitive poverty measurement gives us a true picture of the actual circumstances experienced by women, men and non-binary people in, in all their diversity. Which makes it possible to see who experiences which issues, barriers, and opportunities so they can be tackled. And at the point at which the SDGs were negotiated, there was a real emphasis on being able to measure progress. The focus was understandably also on using indicators that were already agreed. You're trying to reach agreement between 192 plus countries. That's a really good place to start because you build them from agreement, yeah. But what it does is it locks in current data collection approaches and given the limitations that i've spoken about this obviously locks in a very inadequate status quo a complex process of identifying and advancing additional indicators and approaches was undertaken between 2015 when the sdgs were agreed and 2020 um, but measurement approaches that were innovations where methodologies were not officially yet officially approved or not yet widely adopted, or effectively ruled out for official tracking purposes. And again, this is really understandable in terms of managing demands on small poorly resourced national statistics offices, but it doesn't change the importance of improving measurement and data for realizing the SDGs. The agenda for sustainable development calls for data to be disaggregated wherever possible. and individual level measurement of multidimensional poverty is essential for that and to get the disaggregated data required for goal one, end poverty in all its forms everywhere. Goal five, achieve gender equality and goal 10, reduce inequalities. So innovations I think such as that championed by Equality Insights are really critical to accelerate the achievement of the SDGs and provide important complementary data that supports action on poverty and inequality, whether or not they are official indicators The value, I think, of the tool in helping to accelerate the achievement and the focus of our efforts to address poverty and inequality, I think, will sell itself. We need grounded data that makes visible the circumstances of women and their diversity in all key areas of life if we're to overcome the barriers that limit the rights and contributions of millions of women and men and non-binary people around the world. The data that we collect is also essential to meet the overarching commitment to leave no one behind. So decision makers and change advocates can't see how overall progress at a a population level is translating into outcomes for particular groups without the disaggregation of data that's enabled by individual level gender sensitive measurement. What you have with the quality insights data then is information that leads to policies and outcomes that help us respond to and address the particular needs of individuals. And it makes it easier to act on the multiple ways in which inequalities intersect. And this is critical if we're going to leave no one behind. So not an official SDG indicator, but definitely can contribute to to achieving them. So, you know, we're seeing some traction that recognises the importance of individual level measurement. But, you know, change isn't straightforward and incumbency, existing ways of measurement brings its own inertia. There's a lot of existing household level data that allows for comparisons across multiple contexts and across time. So, you know, changing how data is collected brings some costs, but the costs of the data and the insights that's missing are very real. And women's lives and their diversity, and especially the lives of older women, are obscured in global poverty data currently, and this hampers action and change. Change requires demand for new data, not just collecting it. And it also requires a capacity to use that. And so bringing together people with expertise in a new measure, such as the Quality Insights Team, and people with deep knowledge of the context and the political context can help in navigating change and expanding the use of new data sources.
0: Thank you so much, Joanne. Thank you very much, Michaela. I so
3: appreciate the opportunity.
0: Once again, that was Joanne Crawford. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the topic of big data and gender equality. Today's show was produced by myself. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy and global affairs issues, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy and global affairs discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.